It is etched in my memory. The day was April 1st, 1994. It was the day I knew I would die. I remember where I was too. I was in Katoomba at the Katoomba Easter Convention. Catherine and I were running the temporary bookstore at the convention. I was tidying up some books on the shelves while the store was closed during a session. I was alone and thinking about turning 30, for it was my birthday, and for the first time, I sensed my mortality. Remember it really clearly. Life wasn't just going to go on, it was finite, and whatever number of years God had allotted to me, I just used up 30 of them. Cue self-absorbed musings about whether I'd live life to the full and what meaning did my life have. Should I be depressed about reaching these milestones? Later on, I shared with Catherine this thinking, and she said, you have a great God, a happy marriage, and a gorgeous baby son. Don't waste your time being depressed. (laughs) She's very supportive and understanding. As the poet... Steve Turner quipped at the end of his poem, Death Lib, which I read with us last September, so I won't read it all now. The thing about dead is we're all going to be it. Or as the always quotable C.S. Lewis observed, 100% of us die and the percentage cannot be increased. The problem with death is that death always wins. People are trumpeted as having escaped death in some harrowing accident or have beaten death in a battle with cancer, but those victories are just battles. In the end, the war is won by death. With death, it's always true that if you win the battle, you still lose the war. And also the problem with death is that it's so far-reaching. It doesn't just confine itself to arriving right at the end of life. It scales back into life. So sickness and deterioration and loss, we struggle against them all because they're signposts on the road that leads to death. And we rebel against our limitations through our diets and our exercise and our pills and to assure ourselves we're not moving in the direction in which we know we are moving. Basically, when it comes to death, humans are losers. Death doesn't give you any alternative options. But God does. And that option lies in the death and resurrection of Jesus. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Today, in verse 58, the Apostle Paul exhorted the Corinthians in this way. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Today, let me show you from 1 Corinthians 15 the truths behind that therefore at the start of verse 58. Basically, we have reasons to live like winners, not losers, when it comes to death. And the first is this. We should stand firm because Jesus had victory over death. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. When it comes to your weekly shopping, some of you might chase the specials. For myself, I am a stand firm, let nothing move you kind of guy. If I find something I like, it's time efficient to buy that product every week. Or if it isn't perishable, to buy three or four of that product to stock up. I'm not led to waver in my loyalty to the product by another product's nicer packaging or striking special discount. I'm not moved to give up on my product because somebody else doesn't like it. 
But then they go and change the recipe. (laughs) It no longer tastes the same. It's not the product that I relied on. It is time to change. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not muesli. Paul can tell the Corinthians to stand firm and let nothing move them because only Jesus Christ died for their sins and was raised again. Have a look at the beginning of the chapter. I want to read from verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15 now. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There's that brand loyalty idea again in verse 2. Hold firmly to the word. The word explained there in verse 3 about Jesus Christ dying for sins and being raised from the dead on the third day. Stand firm, let nothing move you from believing in Jesus Christ and all that he achieved in dying and raising again and being raised again. Paul will go on in the rest of chapter 15 to focus particularly on the resurrection of Jesus. First thing he does is list the impressive evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And over the years, that's convinced many that the best explanation for the undoubtedly empty tomb on the third day of the Passover was that Jesus had been raised to life again. But Paul then moves on from there to think about how Jesus' resurrection from death opens up a wonderful opportunity for humanity. It's possible to no longer be losers. Let's pick it up at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first. But, and this is Paul's point, he definitely won't be the last. Jesus is the, did you see the phrase? First fruits. If you were an orchardist, orchardist, you'd be thrilled to see the first fruit of the season. But not if you thought that was it for the year. No, the first fruit is the signal that more is to come. And when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it is the signal, verse 23, of the resurrection of those who belong to him. What a lovely phrase to describe a follower of Jesus. If you've accepted that Jesus is the Lord, then you're his servant. In other words, in these words, you belong to him. A Christian is a person who belongs to Jesus. We've committed our lives to trusting, obeying and serving him. Now, if the idea of belonging to Jesus sort of catches in your throat, well, you probably aren't one of his followers, even if you like to identify as one. And if that's you and you want to talk about it, I'm always available. Notice that for those who belong to Jesus, the future is bright. Verse 22, 
in Christ, all will be made alive. In other words, death isn't going to win in your life if you belong to Jesus. You aren't a loser because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the guarantee of our own resurrection from the dead. What happened to him will happen to those who belong to Jesus, who are in Christ. In other words, we will be made alive again. Now, given all that those who belong to him have through Christ's resurrection, this certain hope, can you see then why it's so important that we stand firm in our confidence in Jesus and his resurrection victory? Paul describes being made alive as involving being given new bodies fit for heaven and eternity as he goes on in the chapter. Paul doesn't know when Jesus will return, but he describes what being made alive will look like for those who are already dead or asleep, as Paul says, and also for those who are still living when Christ returns. Have a look at verse 52. You'll be glad that we've jumped from verse 23 to verse 52. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. You see the Christian hope there? The Christian certainty because of Jesus, the first fruits. It is that we will receive imperishable, immortal bodies that will fit us for eternity with Christ. Notice it's not souls floating in the sky soup. When Christians uh, picture eternal life like the soul in heaven, they're actually following the Buddhist Bible, not the Christian Bible. Jesus, the first fruits, makes us expect a body just a better one than the one you've got now, one that doesn't perish, wear out with age or succumb to disease or illness, one that won't just run out of puff. Now, I don't normally quote C.S. Lewis, so it surprises me to be doing it a second time in this talk. But he's so clarifying. Peter, can I have a clicker, please? He's so clarifying when he says this. I'll bring it up on the screen. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. One day our bodies will be that good, being imperishable and immortal, that if you saw us now, you'd be tempted to treat us as a god or angelic being. That, that is our hope. So it follows again, doesn't it, that you must stand firm and let nothing move you from your faith in Jesus. With Jesus, you've moved from being a loser to being a winner over death. Nothing else can defeat death for you. No fitness program, no pills, no relaxing early retirement. No one else, no celebrity, sports star or TV host no one else is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. No other celebrity, sports star or TV host has come back from the dead. Not Gandhi, not Nelson Mandela, not Abraham Lincoln, not Princess Diana. Death has beaten all of them. Only Jesus has come back from the dead. And based on past performance, 
if any current life gurus or celebrity bloggers die, they won't be coming back either. They'll be losers as well. Do not listen to the fashions of our world if it's going to take you away from the one who's come back from the dead. And that's because nobody else and nothing else does what Jesus does. Let's look at that from verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. You see there in verse 55, Paul's mocking death. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He's confident to mock because he knows that through Jesus, death become, became and will become, when it comes to Jesus' people, become the loser. So verse 57, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a complete and utter defeat. I love those words. Death has been swallowed up in victory, annihilated. And death will be forced to give up any who belong to Christ during their life but are now dead. Dead thought thought it had another trophy, but no, the dead who belong to Christ, who went to sleep trusting in Christ, will be raised and given new and better bodies. What has Jesus done particularly that makes standing firm with him the way to victory over death? Well, at this point in 1 Corinthians 15, I always think of the Harry Potter books and movies. If you've ever seen one of the earlier movies... Whenever Harry's lesser nemesis, it's the guy on the right, the blonde fellow, Draco Malfoy, is around, Draco is always accompanied by his two henchmen, Vincent Crabb and Gregory Goyle. I never really worked out which was which. They're always together. This is Draco and his bully friends. Well, Christ has dealt with death's bully friends, sin and law. On his own... Death isn't potent. Look at verse 55 again. Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The reason that death has power over us is because the penalty for sin is death. It's just how it is when your God is a holy, just God. But when Christ dies in the place of the people who belong to him, he takes the punishment for their sin. In Paul's language here, Jesus has taken the sting of death on himself. When that bee stung you, it couldn't sting the person you were sitting next to. Bees only have one stinger. Well, when Christ took your sins on himself, you're no longer able to be condemned for sin. Sin has lost its sting, or death has lost its sting in sin. Christ also deals with death's other bully friend, the law. For law, think Ten Commandments. The thing about the law is that it's never a friend of sinners. The law just illuminates, exposes our failure. It just shows up our sin. The law sets a standard we never reach. It shows the extent of our rebellion against God. With his friend sin, the law just condemns us into death's arms. But Christ, we know, never sinned. 
He fulfilled the law completely. So Christ could be the perfect saviour and substitute when he died for our sins. The, The penalty of death demanded by sin and the law was paid by Christ for anyone who belongs to him. So that means Jesus has dealt with sin and the law. Sin and the law can't touch us. If you know the MC Hammer song from 1990, I've been singing it in my head the whole time I wrote this sermon yesterday. It was quite difficult. Can't touch us. We're no longer losers to death. We're looking forward to one day having a victory over death. So with Paul in verse 57, we have every reason to say, thanks be to God. And every reason then, verse 58, dear brothers and sisters, to stand firm and let nothing move you. The story of Hinu Anada fascinates me. You've probably heard about him. In 1974, he was the last Japanese World War II soldier to surrender. He was on an island in the Philippines which was occupied by the Japanese but freed by the Americans. But Onada and four other soldiers escaped to the jungle when the Americans uh, invaded the island. Over the years, those other four died, were killed or captured, but not Huru Onada. And he'd been trained in guerrilla warfare, so he was very good at surviving in the jungle for the next 29 years, living off the land or raiding local fields and sometimes stealing their cows. He's actually believed to be responsible for the death of about 30 locals over those roughly 30 years. He refused to surrender, even when they dropped leaflets on the jungle, even when loudspeaker messages were made announcing that the war was over and Japan had surrendered. He believed those announcements were Western propaganda. He was determined to continue to serve his emperor and his country. And it wasn't until the Japanese government located and flew over his former commanding officer who told him to not surrender and fight to the death. He finally surrendered, receiving a personal command from that commander. And on that day in March 1974, Onada handed his sword to President Marcos of the Philippines, who controversially for the locals pardoned him. He carried on a war for 29 years, serving a dead leader, a war that was already lost. It was a completely useless little war he carried on. I wonder how he felt when they finally convinced him the war was over. Did he feel frustrated that he'd served a dead leader for so long. You are not going to experience that frustration if you belong to the Lord. Because we belong to a living Lord. He's not a dead leader. So it's not vain or useless to serve him. Jesus has had victory over death. He's still alive. He's the first fruits. So verse 58 Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. As the people who belong to Christ and and are waiting for him to come back, we know we'll be changed and given immortal bodies and we'll fully experience the, the victory of Jesus over death, sin and the law. But we're waiting for that day. 
And sometimes when you're waiting for someone, you just get impatient and you keep looking at your watch or sending increasingly frequent where are you texts from outside McDonald's Beacon Hill to your teenage relative inside. Other times you're more prepared for the wait and you've brought along a book to read or some work to do. And sometimes you even feel disappointed when they arrive because you are close to finishing something. We belong to the risen Lord. We are his people, his servants. So we're not to sit around bored, idle, or feeling angry, impatiently angry. Verse 58, we are to always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Notice it's not sometimes or occasionally. It's a constant thing. It's a mindset we are to have, that while we wait, we are to do Christ's work. We labour for him. And we know it's not in vain. It's not in vain for two reasons. First, one day he'll return and we'll receive our new bodies and it'll be clear that belonging to Christ was not a foolish, useless life choice. It was the smartest decision we ever made. And it's not vain for another reason because it's the work of the Lord. So it's work that'll help people to stand firm and continue to belong to him. In the words of our church vision, to grow in Jesus. And it'll be work that helps other people to recognise they need a saviour from sin who guarantees victory over death. In the words of our church vision, that'll be a work of the Lord that involves helping people encounter and believe in Jesus. All the other good things we do, and there are many good things we do, the fruit of our teaching, our building, our financial management, our marketing, our nursing, our gardening... All the many things we do, which we must do well and to the glory of God, those things will only be experienced in this life. But the resurrection of Jesus gives the work of the Lord a unique quality. Through the work of the Lord, our people will be helped to be in eternity. One day, there'll be people in eternity with you who belong to the Lord because you prayed for them because you taught them in kids' church or because you shared your thoughts on a passage in a growth group you both belong to or because you had a listening ear for them when they were struggling with something in life and they experienced God's love enough through you that helped them to stand firm or because you weren't embarrassed to be known as someone who belongs to Jesus at your workplace and that got someone thinking and God did other things in his plan and brought them to believe in Christ. Or because you gave up a day to help out at Chasm and they encountered Jesus and then went on to lights and believe and grow in Jesus. We have a a young guy in 6pm service who's in year 11. He was a Chasmite and he's gone through lights and he's standing firm for Christ. And it's all because somebody at Chasm cared for him in, in our big team at Chasm. What you do as you give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, will have fruit in eternity as well. So your work in the Lord is not in vain, even though it might feel like it sometimes when the fruit seems small or slow. We, we leave that to God, don't we? We have to keep reminding ourselves about that. Being a Christian, serving the Lord, is seen by many as foolish, useless, waste of time on a dead man. But the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection, it guarantees us, assures us that the work of the Lord is never in vain. 
It is not useless because we're serving our risen Lord and Saviour. It's not useless because what we do can make all the difference to other people getting to share eternity with us as well. So on this day, our kick-off for the year in ministry together at St Mark's, want to encourage you to give yourself to the work of the Lord in 2020 as you have resources and health and opportunity. I don't only mean ministries and activities here at St Mark's, but also in your work of representing Christ and uh, in your family and your friends and your workplace and also of supporting mission and other things that Christ's wider church does as well. There are so many things about St Mark's ministry that we could mention today and there's our church vision up on the screen. But I'm going to highlight just four for you specially today. One of the things we have in our vision is that we share the gospel to all fresh water, helping people to encounter, believe and grow in Jesus. For growing in Jesus, one of the things we want to do, and I know this is true for many of you, is that you'd like to be more confident in sharing your faith as God gives you the opportunity. Last year it was exciting to host Sam Chan for a night of training and encouragement and we want to build on that this year by doing what he encouraged us to do. I reckon we need to help ourselves in mixing our uniform verses. Remember that idea, helping our Christian and non-Christian friends meet and also with trying to be intentionally hospitable to friends and neighbours and see where that leads. In addition to that, as we do that, On May the 6th this year, we'll hold another night with Sam Chan and we expect that night's going to be a night revolving around him helping us learning how to share our faith in a simple, natural way. So that's something to look forward to on May the 6th for helping each other grow in Jesus. One of the aspirations in our vision is to run two or more community focus events a year. They're events designed to increase our community presence and contacts with the hope that people will come to other St Mark's ministry and encounter and believe in Jesus. So in 2019, we met that aspiration through the running of the two Raising Kids Nights, the Lolly Mania event on Halloween, and Dave ran the boot camp for young adults. In 2020, I've got it up there, we're going to run two more Raising Kids Nights. Uh, The first one is with Melinda Tankard-Reese and it's on March the 12th. And in a couple of weeks you'll be asked to help in doing the letterbox drop to advertise that event with the postcards. Walking streets is a real practical work of the Lord, don't you agree? And Halloween this year for Lolly Mania is on a Saturday. So I'm hoping that with many not working, we'll be able to be even more effective at Lolly Mania this year at making contacts, letting people realise what we can offer at St Mark's. Our vision calls for St Mark's to be about helping people grow in Jesus, as I've said. And one of the main ways we try to achieve that goal is through our Sunday sermons from God's Word, the Bible, and the growth groups looking at God's Word as well, which we've already thought about in our announcements today. Obviously, uh, also... 
as the Bible is talked and read in kids' church, lights the third Friday and on Christian care team visits to homes, people can grow in their understanding of belonging to Jesus. This year, I'm also planning to run a more college PTC Bible course on Monday nights in Term 3. You might want to consider that when it gets advertised. It'll be an opportunity for you to deepen your understanding of parts of the Bible and strengthen your faith. On Monday nights in Term 2, I'm hoping Catherine and I will run a new marriage course that's been just produced last year here in Sydney. And the goal of that will be to help marriages to grow in practical ways so that they might better experience and reflect God's will for marriage. Finally, one of the pillars of our vision is that we are a prayerful church in everything we do. In recent years, we've tried to grow our prayerfulness through dedicating one or two services a year to prayer and also continuing the church breakfast. Why don't you come one month if you haven't before? And Dave and I have been sharing the writing of the prayer prompt studies for each growth group to do at the start of each term. What I do a new initiative today, and at this point, Kerry, this is your cue, uh, and Betty. Betty and Kerry are going to bring around two, uh, some cards. It looks like this. And you're going to get two. You're going to get two of them. And I'd like you, I'll explain them. And the idea is that you write the same thing on both cards. We're going to do that now. The idea of the card is to encourage us to commit to pray regularly for two by two in 2020. Two non-Christians to believe in Jesus and two Christians to grow in Jesus. Two non-Christians that God will open their eyes and heart to recognise that Jesus is the Saviour and risen Lord and pray for two Christian people for their growth this year in faith or knowledge or a new ministry skill. I'm thinking there that you'll probably, it'll probably be someone here at church or in your growth group. Now if anyone else wants to help, I can see this is going to take a little bit longer. You could take half of Betty or Kerry's pile and Come to the front. So, yeah, when you get them, write down the names. The idea is you keep one of the cards and put it somewhere where you'll see it, in your Bible, on your desk, beside your bed. Photograph it for your phone if that's more you. Whatever will help you be reminded to pray regularly for the people on it. And the second card I'm going to collect, or you can put in the letterbox up the back. It's not because I want to check on you. You can even use initials on the second card if you want and you don't need to put your name on it. I merely want to count up how many people we're praying for and use that for our encouragement in 2020. I'm going to remind you during the year of our 2 by 2 2020 prayer commitment and, and, and I hope uh, we'll keep at it as we go on. So we'll just take a moment. Many of you have got pens... If you haven't, there's a few coming around. Think who, if, you're not, if you really want to think about this more, by all means, um, put it in the letterbox next week. We'll do it over this weekend next week. But I know some of you know who you want to pray for. Yes. 
identical. You need to be, make them identical. You keep one for yourself to remind yourself and the other one goes in the letterbox so we can count up the people we're praying for. That's simply what it's for. No, I won't follow up. If you want me to, I can. Right on the top, ask me and I will. But that's not what I planned. And you don't even have to write your name. Okay, I'm going to lead us in prayer.